Hello and welcome to the Knowledge Without College podcast. This is your host, Patrick Butler. And today I have one of the most exciting and interesting and formative episodes that I think we've ever done. I'm incredibly excited to share it with you. I'm fresh off a conversation with Andres Antonopoulos. He is a public speaker, author, coder in the world's, one of the world's foremost Bitcoin and blockchain experts. In 2014, Andres authored the groundbreaking book, Mastering Bitcoin. He's come out with three books since, his latest being Mastering Ethereum. I recommend you check out all of them. I am excited to hear your feedback on this episode. I think you will really enjoy it as much as I did. I know my mind right now is buzzing with new ideas, new possibilities, and new potentials for the future. I hope you have the same experience. So without further delay, please enjoy this episode with the great Andres Antonopoulos. Andre, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a truly an honor to have you on the show today. It's my pleasure, Patrick. Thank you. Well, first off, I want to say I, I the first time I heard of you, I heard you on Joe Rogan. I think it was back in 2014, and it was enlightening for me to learn about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies and blockchain. And since that point, I've had a huge interest in it that has continued to grow year after year. And I. You know, I've seen your your growth as well, sort of in this space, and to become sort of a figurehead of Bitcoin. And I have to just I love what you're doing, and and I'm so excited to sort of you know have you here to to share some information with the listeners. Yeah, uh, well, it's it's my pleasure. Thank you. Uh, it's uh, I, I would certainly not use the term figurehead because I think it's important to emphasize and important for everyone to understand that. Uh, Bitcoin is a completely decentralized entity. There are no leaders in this system, uh, or you know, if there are, I'm certainly not one of them. Um, I like to think of myself as a Sherpa, so I'm going to help guide you on the journey to figure out and understand what the hell this thing is. Um, and that's, that's been a lot of fun, uh, and I've been going around explaining um, this complicated technology to people. Um, for the last six years now. It's incredible work that you're doing and, and I'm looking forward to your explanation uh, about some of these things. My, uh, the first place I want to start is I'm curious, like when did you hear about this technology and, and how did, did you know at that point that it was something that you wanted to really stick to for a while or did it, did you have to see some of the progression of it before you understood really what the total potential or capacity for this technology was? Um, I was I was especially primed and ready for the specific message, if you like. Um, my background is computers. I'm a computer geek. 
Um, I've, I've been a computer geek since, since I was 11 years old, uh, absolutely fascinated with technology. And um, I got involved in computer security. I went to college. I have a computer science degree. I did my master's degree in, in data communications and distributed systems. So kind of very much in the, in the core uh, demographic that's most likely to hear about this kind of technology early on. But also in the, in the early 90s, I got fascinated with uh, a particularly obscure area of computers, which is applied cryptography, which is how you use numeric codes, cryptography, secret writing, encryption, uh, technologies like that to, um, to empower individuals, to protect individual freedoms and rights, and to, um, to protect your privacy, um, to create independence and empowerment for individuals. And one of the topics in that space was digital currency. And there are many attempts before Bitcoin to do digital currency using the tools of cryptography. Um, and none of them really worked. And part of the reason none of them worked was because they were all centralized. They had to have a central point to reconcile transactions. Um, so when I first heard about Bitcoin in 2011, I didn't realize what it was. Uh, I read an article about it. It was in relationship to some gambling sites, uh, people using it to do gambling. Now, I've, I've heard of lots of digital currencies at that point that had been used you know, very often these kinds of things which are outside of the mainstream are used initially in activities that are outside the mainstream. So gambling, I wasn't particularly interested in that. And so I dismissed it. And the second time I read about it was sometime in 2012. And um, the posting I read had a link to the white paper. And I started reading the white paper and it dawned on me that this was not simply a digital currency, but more importantly, it was one that was decentralized, distributed. It didn't have a central point. There was no central server for reconciliation. This was not something that was a project by a company or run by some organization, as many of the previous attempts had been. Um, this was a completely um, different beast. It is an open system, uh, decentralized in its entirety, where the security of the system emerges from collaboration. And once I realized that, it just blew my mind. Immediately, I was primed for it. And so I literally dropped everything, dropped my clients, stopped doing consulting, um, and spent the next four months reading everything I could about it, immersing myself in it. But literally the first time I read the paper, by the time I got to the end of the paper, I was like, this is what I'm going to be doing for the next decade at least. Done. Wow. That's down the rabbit hole <laughs> head first <laughs> that's that's what i like to hear you know that's usually the best way to dive into things uh was it the decentralized component of it that was so intriguing or was it just the fact that this new technology had come around and is sort of a digital currency well it, it it was it was the fact that because it's decentralized this thing has a chance to work but also because while reading the paper it struck me as a particularly elegant way to design a solution to the problems of running a decentralized system. Um, and you know, my, my background in computer science, my background in distributed systems, I had the necessary knowledge to understand kind of the impact of how this was structured and why it was structured the way it was structured. And it just, it just struck me as elegant. It's difficult to explain but 
I, I've had this experience before in my life where as someone who's fascinated by technology, I'll look at a piece of technology and some technologies feel rough or kludgy or um, dirty or weird and some feel elegant and beautiful. And it's hard to really explain what makes something elegant in, in mm -hmm. terms of technology, but this was one of them. And so I immediately kind of focused on it. Wow, okay. So, uh, you know, fast forward a few years and now, you know, we're in a space where, uh, like last year we saw the rise of Bitcoin, like sort of the inflation of it and then, you know, all these other coins coming around. I'm yeah. curious because uh, I really don't I don't understand too much about what separate what what differentiates different coins and the different technologies. But uh, do you think Bitcoin holds some sort of uh, like a unique property that that will keep it being unique, or do you see other coins who are surpassing it, or, or what's your opinion there? Well, I think first of all what Bitcoin did was it opened the door to a future where people have choices and these choices um, allow us to explore many different ways of solving um, both the same problem, which is how to do money on a neutral private non-national uh, non basis, a global private money, but also how to do other things that are related to money, things involving trust, things involving various financial instruments, um, problems around identity and um, attestation, contracts, things like that. So it opened the door to all of these possibilities. And these possibilities are now being actively explored by dozens of different uh, similar systems called cryptocurrencies or blockchains. Um, and, you know, there, there are some that are interesting, uh, not many. And there are hundreds and hundreds that are just kind of opportunistic grabs at fame and money and fortune and uh, very much like the, the dot-com boom, right? You had a whole bunch of, a company would just add dot-com to their name and quadruple their valuation. You know, last year, Kodak said they were doing something with blockchain and there, yeah, there's all of these silly things going on. Um, and so you, you, have, you, you have this incredible explosion. But th there is something special the, the Bitcoin has done. And, and I think people will be surprised to hear what that is. And, and the special thing that Bitcoin has done is it has not died yet. But not dying yet, repeatedly, for 10 years, while it's attacked from every side, lambasted by governments, uh, attacked in the media, associated with all kinds of horrible things, um, derided, laughed at, gone through bubbles, risen, crashed again and again and again and again. And every now and then you see the headline. Bitcoin's dead, Bitcoin's dying, Bitcoin's about to die. And then you wait and three months later, you're like, what, it's, it's still there? I heard about that, but I thought that died when, they, when mm -hmm. they jailed the CEO of that Japanese company. You know, so you get that reaction <laughs> yeah, from yeah. people. And that's a beautiful story because that story of, of not quite dying again and again and again 
is resilience and it's adaptability. And what Bitcoin has done is it's established itself as this incredibly resilient thing that no matter how many times you attack it, it just keeps coming back. And every time it comes back, it comes back stronger than before, more resilient to the previous round of attacks, uh, more accepted in more ways. And that's difficult for other systems to copy. So you look at all of these other cryptocurrencies, and if they try to do what Bitcoin already does, that's a non-starter because, well, there's Bitcoin, and it's been doing it longer and proven itself to be resilient. So they have to differentiate. If they differentiate not enough, they're just trying to be a me too, and they fail. If they differentiate too much, then they're really addressing a different application space, and then they're not competing directly with what Bitcoin does. What Bitcoin does beautifully is globally available, completely open, neutral to all geopolitics, open, sound, predictable money that is incredibly robust, that can be used even when people don't want you to use it, by people who, don't, who we don't want to use it, uh, everyone really, in any circumstances. Um, 24 hours a day, without fail, in an uncensorable way. Now that seems like a very narrow use case until you realize how politicized our money systems have become and how many restrictions there are in the way of people just using money to do trade around the world and how many people are unbanked because of all of these restrictions. Then you realize it's not a small application. It's, it's the, one of the biggest applications there is out there. So how, uh, so I'm assuming that Bitcoin, part of the reason that it's maintained, you know, it hasn't died yet is because of the name recognition. You know, it's sort of like that first brand to come to market. People are going to always remember it. Sort of like Coca-Cola is not going to go out of business because of Pepsi, just because they sort of delivered into the marketplace first. I mean, that's, that's part of it, but um, that's not enough because, you know, part of the name comes also the negative implications. True. So, you know, from the very beginning, Bitcoin's used to buy drugs. Uh, um, yes, of course it is. It's money. And mm -hmm. if you, uh, <laughs> arguably, if you couldn't buy uh, anything with it, then it wouldn't be money. That's the definition of money. You can buy anything with it. So, of course, some people are going to use it to buy things that are illegal in some places, perhaps legal in other places. Um, it, the associations, the negative associations, people are trying to create this impression from the very early days that because Bitcoin isn't controlled by anyone, that it's dangerous, which is, of course, a classic logical fallacy appeal to authority. In fact, we've had money that wasn't controlled by anyone for thousands of years. Not only was it dangerous, but it actually led to some of the uh, kind of most prosperous periods of humanity. Um, it, it, only lately have we got this idea that money should be controlled completely and that everything we do with money should be monitored just in case it gets into the hands of bad people. Of course, when we do that, the people who control the money turn out to be the bad people. And then, you know, no better way to rob a bank than to own the bank, if you know what I mean. <laughs> um, so, so you get the flip side of that. But this negative association to the name continues. It's not just the name. Yeah, name recognition doesn't get you enough. You also need a technology that really is robust. Part of the reason Bitcoin hasn't died is because it can't be shut down. It's because there is no place where you can target 
where there's a con concentration of control or power that you can turn off. That independence, that ability to exist uh, on the internet and to communicate on any medium possible, that makes it robust. And it actually provides a lot of the utility because unstoppable transactions turns out to be something that's rather necessary in a world where people are trying to stop transactions all the time. We mean, when you say people are trying to stop transactions all the time, are you referring to like banks trying to stop transactions or just trying to? Well, I mean, if you, if you have banks, you know, you've got to realize that the, the experience of Western Europeans and, and North Americans is the exception. In most countries, the availability to banking infrastructure to healthy, robust, and stable currencies is non-existent. But no, it's not just banks. It's also nation states, right? So increasingly... Um, Russia, China, the US, they fight their wars through money. They fight their wars through banking, through access to financial instruments, through access to um, cross-border transactions. You know, behave or we will cut you off from the system. Um, the weaponization of currencies is now happening on a global basis in what m most people call the currency wars. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a prelude and a parallel to trade wars, which we're all familiar with. Um, but the U.S. does it more than any other country, but other countries are also doing it. So embargoes and sanctions and um, currency manipulation and uh, all of these things, these don't just happen to governments. They happen to the millions and eventually billions of people who depend on money to live, to build a future for their children, to, to engage in commerce. So if you live in a country where you can't trade with your immediate neighbor because they're in a currency war, or you can't export products, or you can't take a job as a web designer for uh, someone in another country because your country is on the no-no list and mm -hmm. through no fault of your own, right? So we created this world where we're intimately connected by the internet on a global basis, and yet our money systems are these islands of warring systems that don't talk to each other. That's one of the things that Bitcoin's here to solve. And how, do you have any sort of uh, prediction or idea of how it's going to sort of break through the, those barriers, break through those? Is it just going to come from people, more people adopting using the technology like regularly? Or do you think there'll be a technological breakthrough that will sort of push it over the line? Not both. I mean, these things happen in cycles and waves. You have... Um, infrastructure, which makes it possible for new applications to happen, technological development. These new applications create more demand, investment, adoption, and this results in people building more infrastructure to support these new users, which leads to the ability to have more applications, which leads to more users and more infrastructure, and you go into that cycle exactly the way the internet broke out. And it doesn't happen all at once, and it doesn't happen in a predictable or linear progression. You have these bursts of adoption, um, or you have these massive changes in technology that open up completely new avenues, like the introduction of the World Wide Web in the mid-90s, or um, the explosion of mobile and the revolution in, in battery power in early 2000 that opened the door to whole new experiences on the internet. This is happening already with Bitcoin. 
So we're seeing, for example, localized currency crises. Um, the capital flights from China in uh, 2016 and uh, 2015, the uh, collapse of the currency in Venezuela over the last two years, the currency crisis in Turkey at the moment, the currency crisis in South America and Argentina and Brazil, which is happening at the moment. Um, all of these uh, crises lead people in those countries to need an exit. They need a life raft. And, and Bitcoin is the life raft currency. It's the one that you can smuggle across borders because it's just a bunch of numbers and you can transmit it no matter how you want. And, uh, and once you get it across borders, then you can use it in other countries and no one can stop you. So people who find, have the means or, or put in the effort to learn about this technology can, can use it to extricate themselves and their families from very difficult situations. One of my, uh, one of my um, colleagues, friends, has a software development con company. He's basically um, hiring people in Venezuela where the economy is completely destroyed. It's in a situation of chaos and collapse. Um, hiring them to do software development, web design, things like that, paying them in Bitcoin. They take that Bitcoin, the biggest problem um, he has is that he has to find new people every three months to hire for his business. And the reason is that once the previous people get enough money, they use that to get the hell out of Venezuela. So it's almost created this <laughs> railroad of yeah. helping people get out of that horrible situation, migrate to neighboring uh, countries, get up enough money that allows them to to bribe and transport themselves and their entire extended family out. And then he needs to f hire a whole bunch of new developers because the previous ones already saved themselves and now they're, they've gone to other places. Uh, you know, this is already happening today. It happened in China. It happened and continues to happen in China. It's happening in India. It's happening in Turkey. It's happening in South America. And every time there's a currency crisis now, now there are life rafts. You don't have to sink with a ship of state when, when your you know, dear leader decides to take everyone on a joyride in currency hell uh, and says, close the borders, shut down the currency exchanges, you're all going with me. And some people are like, ah, sounds swell, see you later, and <laughs> jump ship. And there is an exit now, they have an option. Um, an option that didn't exist before, and that's a global, neutral, and open digital currency that they can transport with them. And so anyone in the world who has access to the internet should be able to get their hands on some Bitcoin? Or, or Not even other? access to the internet. You, you don't, in some cases, depending on the level of desperation, don't even need access to the internet. You could even um, use a very primitive technology I and mean, people are transporting Bitcoin over USB sticks. Um, people are, uh, you can, you can transport Bitcoin because it's a information system. You can encode your access to, uh, to Bitcoin credentials or keys, if you like in English words. So for example, you can create a, a Bitcoin wallet where you can have someone deposit Bitcoin for you. Right. And then you can take that Bitcoin wallet and um, back it up as 12 English words. If you can memorize those 12 English words, you can then throw away the wallet, 
cross five international borders with nothing but the shirts on your back and those 12 words in your head, land in a new country, pick up any kind of computer system that supports the very basic, simple software, load those 12 words, and there's your Bitcoin waiting for you. Wow. So you can, you can transport a four, you can transport $5 or $5 billion in your head as 12 English words. That's it. Wow. And what software would that be? Uh, just to clarify there, like if, go all, to a new country, load it up. Yeah, all, all Bitcoin wallets or almost all Bitcoin wallets support the standard that allows you to back up the wallet as what's called a mnemonic which is these words. Um, for a high security mnemonic, if you're moving a lot of money, you might want to do 24 words. Uh, you can do 12, 18, or 24, for example. Um, but even 12, you know, is, is secure enough for most people. Um, you know, some people store hundreds of millions of dollars in these 24 word combinations. Um, but, you know, imagine a refugee who's escaping uh, a, a dictator and they're trying to save some of their um, fortune so they can support their children when they arrive in a new country. And now they can do that um, essentially by memorizing 12 words. It's impossible to stop something like that. And yeah. that's one of the whole points. That's, that's one of the things that Bitcoin does that you can't do with any other financial system in the world. Um, and it, it gives you that exit. That is truly incredible. Wow. Um, switching gears a little bit. So I'm curious about the difference between Bitcoin and Ethereum. Sort of, and you mentioned before that you know, different coins they either need to distinguish themselves enough to, to have a purpose or if they don't distinguish themselves or a me too of the Bitcoin. What's different about Ethereum that, that has, you know, it's still surviving today? So, um, Bitcoin, as I said before, is, is the robust, very secure, very simple um, money system. And it can do fairly sophisticated things. It's programmable money. But um, it's limited on purpose so that it can be extremely secure and robust. Ethereum's approach is different. It's a highly programmable and very, very flexible system uh, called smart contracts. And smart contracts are these little programs that you can run on the Ethereum platform where everybody agrees on exactly how the program runs and what the outcome will be. So um, rather than just doing money, you could build a marketplace, a financial instrument, an insurance product, uh, um, a self-executing uh, agreements between parties as to what's going to happen with a specific bunch of money based on certain conditions. And these are very programmable, but once you write the program and run it on Ethereum, this is called a smart contract, once you run that little program, it will run in exactly the way you specified in a very predictable manner, um, and it will run everywhere in exactly the same way. Uh, what that gives you is a, is a completely new class of computing. It's like a world computer where every program runs uh, in a unique and predictable way, but everyone can trust the outcome. Now, it's incredibly inefficient because imagine a computer where it runs everywhere in the world, and if anybody wants to run a program, 
everyone has to run that program, right? Mm -hmm. To make sure that all of the results are the same. Um, so you don't need to do that, and you certainly won't do that for most computation, but for certain very, very specific types of computation, like did I fulfill the requirements for escrow on my house? Uh, that's the kind of program that it's worth at that cost to run in a trusted way. So that's what Ethereum does. Now, that flexibility means that it's a system that um, changes much faster and is under constant development. It's also less mature than Bitcoin simply because it's only been around since 2014, uh, 2015, effectively. And uh, so it serves a completely different uh, purpose. Uh, my recent book is about Ethereum. That's the fourth book I've written uh, called Mastering Ethereum, and it's about how that system works. I'll have to, I got to check that out. That's, uh, that's really cool. So would you, so, cause what I'm really curious about is how some of these technologies are going to be applied to business and different industries and even things like government. Uh, so what are some of the applications that you see of like, of blockchain technology being, do you see it being used in business today? Or do you see any areas where if it was used, it would be extremely efficient. It should, it would change everything. Uh, well, I, I think it's important to realize that most of the power of this technology is going to individuals. And that's one of the interesting things about it is that um, because it's highly decentralized, um, if you start centralizing control over aspects of the system, you break its properties. It's no longer, it can no longer be trusted if too, many, if too much control is in few hands. As long as you keep it decentralized among many people, it's most effective. So, um, you know, the, the number of applications that, that exist, it's not about companies, it's about protocols that exist without companies. So, for example, imagine running uh, a taxi sharing service like Uber only without Uber. Like, what exactly do you need the company to do? You need them to aggregate and guarantee payments, you need them to handle insurance, and you need them to handle the verification of the, the rating, the reputation score of each of the participants, um, and to match passengers to drivers. And you can do all of that in software without a company. You can do all of that as an internet protocol where your, your mobile phone goes out and squawks on the internet, hey, I need a taxi, and the, the driver's phones pick it up. How do you trust that driver? How, do you, how does the driver trust you that you're going to make a payment? Well, that's a, a perfect application for smart contracts. And so it's not a business application for smart contracts. It's not where you build a business to compete with Uber. It's where we replace Uber with software and we don't need Uber anymore. Just like we didn't replace internet newspaper, sorry, newspapers with internet newspapers we replace them with the web, a protocol that distributes information more efficiently than newspapers did. Now, there are publishers on that protocol who have centralized power again, but the beauty of the web wasn't the ability to have companies replace newspapers. It was the ability for all of us to participate in gathering and disseminating information. And that's really the empowering thing. Same thing is happening with blockchain technologies. Other examples that are really powerful, I mean, businesses can use this technology um, on their own. For example, if you run an import-export business, 
making payments across borders is a gigantic pain in the ass. Um, it's very, very slow, it's inefficient, it's insecure, it's fraught with problems. Um, a wire transfer takes three to five days, supposedly, sometimes 24 hours, sometimes three weeks, sometimes they lose it, sometimes they tell you, oh, we can't receive payment from that translator you use to translate your book um, who lives in Russia because we don't know if they're a bad person. So give us all of the information on who they are, where they came from, blah, blah. It's like, it's my translator. They translated my book. I'm picking a completely yeah. theoretical example here that didn't happen to me last year. <laughs> um, it's ridiculous, right? Um, yeah. So uh, paying contractors in other countries to do basic things like I, I pay web developers and audio video producers and um, you know people to, who help me in my business. These people are not in the U.S., uh, nor do they need to be in the U.S. In fact, I have a fantastic um, video producer, video engineer, who does all of the production on my videos, who lives in the Philippines. Now, actually paying that person, three choices, wire transfer, slow and very expensive, fraught with problems, and they can cut me off anytime they want. PayPal, slow, expensive, fraught with problems, they can cut me off anytime. Bitcoin, instant, unstoppable, no problems, right? And so that's an example. So companies can use Bitcoin to pay partners, providers, suppliers, contractors, and employees all over the world efficiently, quickly, securely. Um, Companies can use it to do imports and export. But again, you know, the real interesting applications are for individuals. I'm much more interested in the possibility of having the 10 million immigrants who live in the U.S., for example, who have to send money home every year. Um, and they send money and pay companies like Western Union billions of dollars. And they profit from the poorest of the poor and take a significant chunk. This is like a regressive tax of 25% on the income of the poorest people in this country. Um, so why not have them use a cryptocurrency to send money home to their own countries, right? It's a fantastic uh, application and opportunity, and it's a problem that exists all around the world. Um, because there's all of these immigrant populations that travel across borders in order to support their families. Uh, that's a great application for cryptocurrency. It's also an application that banks do not serve. I see. So let's say you found a video person in the Philippines and they weren't using Bitcoin right now. How do you persuade them to, to change their, their payment method and, and to adapt this new currency and to you know, sort of accept being paid like that? Well, one of the interesting things that happens is the, the way I've done that in the past is I won't try to do that. First of all, because it's, it's hella dodgy, right? It's very suspicious. <laughs> we'll pay you with ones and zeros. It's okay. It's all there. Yes. <laughs> Hello, dear fellow. I come from your former colonist imperialist overlord <laughs> country. I would like to pay you in something that is not recognized an official currency in your country. They're like, yeah, you tried that before with uh, glass beads and also <laughs> trinkets and <laughs> we're smarter now. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's not a good approach. I didn't Instead, think like that. 
what, what, what I do, and uh, yeah, hey, magic internet money, of course, people are going to be very suspicious of that. You don't want to start a relationship like that. I'll pay them with PayPal. Um, and then I'll offer a bonus. Uh, and I'll offer the bonus in Bitcoin. Now, that's found money, right? It's like, I didn't have it before. I have it now. Even if it's worthless, I've lost nothing. So most people will take that. They'll be curious. I'll be like, hey, listen, I'm going to give you a bonus, but your bonus is going to be in Bitcoin. Here you go. Um, and they'll be like, okay, but how do I, what do I do with this? So I'll give them information on how to cash it out. We'll go cash it out. And the first time they're going to be very skeptical that this is even going to work, but it does. They'll find someone in a local market there who wants Bitcoin in their country. Trust me, demand is always very, very high and they'll buy it from them for cash. And the first time that it works, they'll be like, oh, well, that wasn't too bad. I mean, I, took me an hour to find someone. I had to go to a cafe and somewhere public so I didn't get mugged. And I had mm -hmm. to give them the Bitcoin and they gave me cash and I had to carefully count it to make sure it wasn't fake, but it worked. And then they start doing the math because here's the funny thing. In countries that have currency controls like that and very difficult wire transfers like the Philippines, right? PayPal's gonna charge 15, 20 uh, dollars for the transaction, sometimes it's going to end up to 15 or 20%. Sometimes it's only going to be 5%, but it's never really less than that. Mm -hmm. When they try to sell Bitcoin at the local coffee shop, that person is going to give them 5% above the market rate because Bitcoin sells at a premium in countries that have currency controls. So where here, Bitcoin sells, let's say today, uh, $3,800 per, there it's $4,000. So this is interesting. What happens is they get it and they go like, oh, that's, that's almost like a negative fee. PayPal charges me, you know, 10%. But when I got the Bitcoin, I actually made 10% more. So my bonus got bigger once I sold it. So I do that a couple of times. On the third time, they usually turn around and they say, could you pay me the other stuff for Bitcoin too? Because <laughs> I, <laughs> I get to keep more of it. So... And that's a very effective way. And if somebody doesn't want it, they don't want it. That's okay. If you don't need it, you don't need it. I'm not going to go and push it on people who don't want it. Um, I also, you know, there's some people in our industry who are like, I'm going to tip my waiter with Bitcoin and they're going to be so happy to get. And I was like, no, that's, that's a douchebag move. In this country where minimum wage doesn't apply to service workers, where they depend on that tip to make their rent, that's a terrible move. That's like those people who go and tip with fake, fake dollar bills that have Bible verses on them. <laughs> Fuck mm, you if yeah. you do that. But if you are giving someone a gift, uh, not for a service, just completely unreciprocated gift or bonus or whatever, maybe you can try that and maybe they'll be interested. Maybe they won't. I love that. I think that's, I work with a number of people overseas both with this podcast and with my, uh, my other business. And it's, I, I would love to implement that strategy there and see how it works. I, mean, I started doing this in 2013 and in 2013, trust me, there were very few avenues to sell it. It was very difficult. People were highly suspicious. Now, most of the people I talk to, they're like, Oh yeah, I'll, I'll take Bitcoin. Sure. I've heard of that. That's, that's the internet money, isn't it? Yeah. You know, like, yeah, it is. It is the internet money. That's so cool. So, so it's, a, it's a generational thing too, um, which, is, which is one of the really funny things about this. Uh, Douglas Adams, 
uh, once said that the way of the world is that anything that was invented before you were born or before you were age five or something like that is the natural order of things and how things always were and perfectly normal. Anything invented between the ages of five and 35 is exciting, new, and uh, something you enthusiastically adopt. And anything invented after you're 35 is, is an abomination that goes against the natural order of things. <laughs> <laughs> and we see that uh, with, with Bitcoin, right? If you go to people and you say, hey, what do you think of a system of money that runs on the internet? People under 35 will be like, well, duh, of course. I mean, I do everything else on the internet. It's the only institution in the world that hasn't yet fully betrayed me. Uh, yeah. <laughs> my parents, the government, capitalism, and the church have already screwed me over. Also, my school, my university, and my student loan systems, and my employer. So, you know, the internet is the last bastion of hope I have for the world. You tell everyone over 40 or 50, you know, what do you think of money as the internet? They're like, oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> so yeah. it's, you see this generational divide. And in fact, I think it, it becomes more pronounced because what most people don't realize is that in, in most countries in the world, you can't even get a bank account or have any kind of financial activity until you're 16, sometimes 18, right? Well, guess what? By that time, we've got them hooked on six to eight years of Bitcoin use. Because, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? So then they walk into a bank having used internet money for six years that is instantaneous, secure, and global. And they go like, what do you mean nine to five, Monday to Friday? And why do you want $5 to hold my money? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh right? Yeah, so there's going to be a, 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 a culture shock. A, a moment of dissonance for young people who are now born into a world where Bitcoin has always existed. The irony is that to them, this is now part of the natural order and how things have always been. I'm so curious to see how that works as time you know moves forward here. Hopefully, I'll you know maybe my generation, too. Will 45 or something, will still be optimistic about new technology. Let's hope. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've kept up for it so far. Um, th there are a few things where I'm beginning to channel um, my parents. Uh, you know, <laughs> like I, I do have these moments where I'm like, oh, that's not really music in my day. You know, <laughs> you catch yourself <laughs> being the old man who screams at the clouds. But <laughs> that's, that's pretty rare so far. I, it's really funny. Um, being part of this, this environment, this system, whether it's Bitcoin, but I also felt that before being the first generation to kind of be part of the launch of the global internet, you get this incredible feeling of, I know this has never happened before. I know this is completely new and I'm watching history happen. This is historical. And people are going to write about this in the future and they're going to be, and I'm part of it, front row seat, on the train, watching it unfold, right? And I got that feeling with the internet. I was pretty young when it started. I, I didn't have any influence or impact or much participation other than as an observer. And this time with Bitcoin, I get that feeling again. And it's just fascinating to, to know that we, don't, we have no idea where it's going. Um, but the idea is out of the bag. It's, it's, it's been invented. And even if this particular experiment fails, 
there'll be another iteration based on the same principles because this is something the world needs. This is something the world now knows can be done. The experiment has so far proven that it's possible. And once you plant that seed, it's just a matter of time. Some iterations further down, some decades further down, the, the, the face of the world, the, the way finance works, the way banking works, the way international trade works, and eventually the way government itself works will change because of this technology. Um, we are currently in the last age of the Industrial Revolution. We're still operating as a global interconnected society on 19th century and 18th century industrialized society institutions, organizations, governance models and practices, and none of those scale. All of them are failing to meet the challenges of the age, and it's time they got replaced. So now we'll figure out what comes next. Yeah, I think it's so exciting to think about those possibilities, especially the way that you described, you know, the new generation coming, you know, coming of age and growing up with this being a part of their reality. I'm curious to see what it will do to these huge institutions and how it'll break through those institutions that have been around for, you know, 100, 200 years, be doing it the same way. What will be sort of like the, the, you know, straw that breaks the camel's back? One thing I'm curious if you have any thoughts or information on or uh, is how this kind of technology could be used for in a democratic society, used for, for voting or for just, rep you know, individual representation, more true representation. Well, I think there are a couple of interesting characteristics of this technology. One is the transparent nature of a public ledger, meaning that if you want to show someone a completely unforgeable uh, accounting of every transaction you've done, you can do that. And it's on a public, unforgeable ledger that is uh, unchangeable forever. And that digital feature has never existed before. So you can open your books. Now, as an individual, you get to not do that because individual privacy is an, is an important human right. But as a, a representative government that supposedly is acting uh, on behalf of the governed and uh, at the consent of the governed, transparency should be normal. So therefore, why not have full access to the accounting of our democracy? That's one aspect. The other aspect is these activities of trust, applications of trust, and voting is one of them. Um, you know, now, we're not ready to start doing voting on the blockchain for the same reason that we're not really ready to do voting with computerized electronic voting machines either, as we are continuously discovering after failed election after failed election uh, and all of the fraud that's happening. At the moment, Ironically, the, the best approach for voting is uh, paper ballots and pencils uh, because it's much easier to monitor and audit the vote in those systems, much harder to fake the vote. But, you know, I, I don't think we're, I don't think the problems we have with our governance systems are electoral. I don't think the problem is how we vote. The problem is definitely that we don't vote or that our vote isn't very effective at making change because they're not actually subject to it. Um, you know, there's this interesting study in Stanford where they looked at uh, the, the desires of the voting population 
as expressed in various surveys and how their representatives voted and there was no correlation. And then they looked at how their representatives voted and the top 1% of 1% uh, desired policies and it was 100% perfectly aligned. It was like, <laughs> oh, that's their constituency. Yeah. That makes sense. They are following their constituency. The only problem is we're not it. <laughs> their policies are perfectly in alignment with their uh, constituency, the constituency that actually pays, uh, not the constituency that votes. So anyhow, uh, long story short, decentralizing control over money also decentralizes access to money and access to finance and democratizes the very fundamental mechanisms of money and commerce, which empowers individuals more and more. And that's a, that has a more important impact on the governance of, a, of our society. The, the current money system that we have concentrates power in very few hands and allows them to extract uh, what's called rent-seeking behavior in economics, where basically they act as parasites and through no productive activity, just basically suck uh, money out of the system uh, because they're the ones who create the money in the first place. That system is parasitic in nature. It encourages bigger and bigger parasites who uh, attach themselves to bigger and bigger flows of money. Uh, so one of the ways we fix our future society is by dis disintermediating and decentralizing finance, removing those opportunities for parasitic behavior by cutting out the middleman. It's like, there is no reason why in every commercial transaction at the moment, if I want to pay a vendor or buy something from a store, at the moment, many transactions which happen with credit cards are from person to corporation, Visa, MasterCard, to corporation, JP Morgan, Chase, Wells Fargo, to corporation, Citibank, Bank of America, to corporation, you know, another bank, yeah. to corporation, Walmart. Right? So you've got person, person to corporations, 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 corporation. Now, I don't accept credit cards in my business. And if I even did accept credit cards in my business, then it would be person to corporations, 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 person. There'd still be three intermediaries who I didn't invite to the party and I don't know what they're doing in the transaction other than taking money from both of us. Yeah. Right? What Bitcoin does is we use this concept, we call it peer to peer. Bitcoin is about payments that are person to person. Notice something missing from that equation? The three parasites. We just cut them out. They're not necessary to the equation. There is no need to introduce a third party into every transaction. Our financial system is heading into a, a, a direction where we have more and more intermediaries. Uh, you know, as we use cash less and less and we rely on these payment networks, what we're doing is we're introducing more and more steps and more and more intermediaries so they can suck on our data, suck on our privacy, suck on our democratic rights, intercede when they think we're doing something we shouldn't be doing, um, whether it's legal or not, and finally take a nice big cut of the payment. Well, guess what? You're fired. We'll just do without you. <laughs> peer to peer. No one in the middle, no opportunity for censorship, no opportunity for privacy violations, no opportunity for surveillance, no opportunity for moralizing about what my purchases are, no opportunity for politically meddling in my purchases, and no opportunity to take a big fat cut, which you then use to turn around 
by my politician and have them legislate your position into a monopoly. So that's how you fix the system. You cut them out of the equation. I love that. Yeah, I think it's, again, I'm just so curious to see where, where these sort of like, where the chinks in the armor are, where eventually we'll be able to, to push these technologies to the forefront where then, like how do the corporations respond to that sort of, you know, this new technology? Oh, it's, it's very, um, well, there's two ways to look at it. One is how they respond to the technology itself. And in that case, they start by ignoring, then they laugh at us, then they fight us, then we win, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. You've heard that adage. It's very yeah. trite and cliche, but it's playing out quite nicely. I like to think about it from the perspective of the banks, in which case I consider them going through the five stages of grief. One, denial. This isn't happening, it isn't money, you can't make it work, it's gonna fail, it's dead. Okay, six months later, it's not dead. Anger, terrorists, pedophiles, pornographers, drug users, you're all terrible individuals, you're burning all of the energy on the planet and destroying the climate. Projecting much? Um, <laughs> you know, then you go to bargaining. We can do blockchains too, corporate blockchains, not decentralized, completely centralized, but look, IBM and Microsoft and uh, Accenture, they're all selling blockchains, blockchain, 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 blockchain. Let's take this disruptive technology and de-disrupt it. Let's defang it. Let's pretend we're doing it, but not actually doing it. Let's take all of this. Oh, you've built this new tool. It's open, neutral, borderless decentralized and censorship resistant. That's fantastic. Well, how about we do it only instead? It's not open, borderless, censorship resistant, decentralized and neutral. How about we own it, we control it, we take a cut and blockchain. That's bargaining. Then you go to depression because all of those projects fail because they don't offer the really interesting things which are decentralization based. So all of these blockchain fake bullshit centralized projects are failing one after the other. And they're like, oh, see, I told you it wouldn't work. We're back to the denial phase. Uh, I told you this technology wasn't really important. Meanwhile, Bitcoin's still there. Didn't die. Really messing this messaging. Mess this story doesn't make sense because you're saying that blockchain doesn't work, but Bitcoin's still working. And for the people who are using it, it's still doing what it always did and it still works for them. So then you finally get to acceptance. Uh, when we get to acceptance, what's going to happen is you're going to see a migration of the world's financial systems on top of these technologies. We're going to re-decentralize finance. And it's not gonna happen because they want to do it, it's gonna happen because they can't stop it. Um, first, it's gonna happen with third tier financial services companies. The smaller banks, the smaller financial service companies, the ones that can't compete against the behemoths because they haven't bought enough Congress people, they're going to say, you know what? This seems to hurt them more than it hurts us. Let's take a bit of this decentralized stuff and ram it so far up the ass of J.P. Morgan Chase that they don't know what happened. Mm -hmm. And that's what they do. That's what happened with the Internet. The tiny phone companies said, oh, AT&T doesn't like internet. Let's build some internet. <laughs> so they peeled away from the consensus of, oh, we're going to build a corporate version of this. And they said, actually, why don't we just build this? 
and started competing against them. So the final stage happens when the ones who don't have a choice, the lesser competitors, capitulate. They peel away from the consensus of the serious big businesses, and they start using this as a competitive weapon. Uh, we're already seeing that in some places. We're also going to see it done not just by smaller companies, but also smaller countries. All of the big, very serious countries are like, well, let's see, how do we legislate this? Maybe we shouldn't let you do this. Tisk, tisk, tisk. And some of the smaller companies are going, hey, we'll let you do this. Come here. Yeah. <laughs> Tax breaks, open regulations, come join us. Malta, Singapore, various other countries are now taking turns saying, why don't we become the center of activity in this new exciting space? You want to open a Bitcoin exchange? You know, Germany isn't giving you a license? Huh, come here, we'll give you a license. And, and you get that kind of competition. So the way it happens is often surprising. Um, and we're going to see these little bursts of activity from different sides, where sometimes where we least expect it. Yeah. Here's another thought. Sure. This isn't happening in isolation. Because the fundamental issue here is not this little disruptive technology that started blooming in the financial crisis of 2008, uh, not coincidentally launched right at that time and, and got an immediate foothold. The real issue is what caused the financial crisis of 2008? What is actually happening in the broader financial system that causes a financial crisis every seven years on average? Oh, look, we're overdue for one by about three years now. Um, don't worry, it's coming soon. Uh, what causes these repeated cycles that get bigger and bigger and bigger? where every time there's a massive financial crisis, the middle class gets shafted, all of the losses get socialized and taken out of taxes and investments into our future, and all of the profits in the next cycle get privatized and increase income inequality. What happens to a system that is already fragile, uh, that encourages parasitic behavior, that is hated by billions of people around the world, that discourages investment, and that is destroying democratic institutions. So it's not just about what Bitcoin does. And most of the big banks, their problem isn't Bitcoin, the problem is themselves. The problem is that they've built this giant edifice of fragile corruption that feeds on itself. And every seven years it breaks down and they have to get bailed out again. That's not a coincidence. When that happens, it's not the system failing. It's the system working exactly as intended. It's, it's a system exhibiting its real nature. Um, and then we can hide it for seven years. And then its real nature comes forward again. It's a system that chews up and digests democracies, chews up the future of our children, that system is broken. The reason it's broken is really simple. The reason it's broken is that while that was a great invention in the 18th century and scaled beautifully to take us out of the feudal age and the age of kings and, and uh, you know, aristocracy, yeah. eventually it stops scaling. And when it stops scaling, it starts working against itself and becomes the new threat, the new aristocracy, the new set of kings, the new corruption. And then it's time to change things. So this change isn't happening because of Bitcoin. Bitcoin is happening 
because of this change, right? Bitcoin isn't the cause. It's the symptom mm. of a system collapsing in on itself. And fortunately, hopefully, we build enough life rafts fast enough with good enough technology, robust enough technology, so that we can salvage some of it. Um, I think that's really the opportunity here. This is about having choices. And you don't have to make people use Bitcoin. You have to be there when they need to use Bitcoin because the other thing failed, right? And most Americans don't get that because their system has enough structural power in it to continue to work even when other systems are failing. But come to South America and have a chat with the average South American about their banks uh, or to Africa or to Southeast Asia. And they've seen their currency fail three times in 30 years. And that's a whole different conversation. When you try to say, hey, would you be interested in a choice that allows you to exit during the next currency crisis? They don't go, we're not go never going to have one of those. Right? The yeah. average American goes, we're never going to have one of those. The dollar will work forever. Great. If you believe that, that's fantastic. Good for you. Hope it does. Um, but you tell the average South American, they're like, okay, tell me more. How do I use this thing? Because I know they're going to fuck it up again. They just did. Yeah, it's just like what you talked about earlier with the, you know, like if, if you're uh, coming of age and you experienced a, a currency crisis, like you're going to be much more susceptible to looking for an alternative. Uh, I got one more area that I w I'm very curious about and see if you, you have any information on. And that's about using like blockchain technology or smart contracts when it comes to utilities and electricity and power. And if you see any future in, in applying those technologies to decentralized power, because I work in the solar industry, residential solar, we, you know, set people up with, uh, you know, their own electrical source, but they're not really able to do much from there. They're still bound by the utility companies uh, to, you know, work with, with them as far as selling the power back. But I like to imagine some sort of future where people can, you know, sort of share power amongst their neighborhood and, you know, have it all uh, accessible on some sort of ledger or something. Do you have any information in that field? I mean, that's already happening. There, there are projects on Ethereum at the moment where they've demonstrated transactions between neighbors selling solar power to each other. So wow. one of the interesting features of this technology is the ability to do microtransactions without having to batch settlement. One of the reasons why a lot of our systems on the internet are centralized is because it's unaffordable to do small transactions. If I want to send you a penny, mm -hmm. right, I can't. In order to do that, let's say I love your videos and I'm watching you on a video platform. I'm like, ah, this deserves a penny. I want to send you a penny. I can't do that. What I need to do instead is amass a certain amount of money and together with millions of other people, we each get debited several pennies for several creators and then YouTube or somebody like that aggregates it and then disperses it out. You have to have that concentration. Part of the reason you have that concentration is we don't have functional micropayments. Well, Cryptocurrencies allow you to do functional micropayments, many different solutions working along that. And micropayments is the first goal because very soon you can completely break down the barriers. You know, in the traditional financial industry, we talk about micropayments as being payments less than 10 cents. In cryptocurrencies, we're talking about payments that are one thousandth of a penny. So what about buying a millisecond of electricity for a thousandth of a penny. 
you can go to a completely different scale of operation. Now, of course, you're not going to be buying. That's an automated system in your house is going to be negotiating between five neighbors for the most efficient price to buy and the next 24-hour block of energy. Now, that application is unlikely to happen in California. And the reason it's unlikely to happen in California is, one, you don't need to do it. You've already got efficient distribution systems. Um, the utilities have all got you all wrapped up in regulations, and they've bought enough politicians to make sure you won't do something so competitive. But now think about it from the perspective of countries where the growth of energy demand is so enormous and the distribution networks don't exist, where this would be a viable way to do community municipal power stations that are, that are funded by the community or distribution networks among different groups of people. So, you know, five neighbors put solar power on their roofs uh, in a remote province in China or Africa and use this then to, to share power with those who don't have solar power. Um, and again, these kinds of applications, though, they're very exciting and inevitably we are going to see uh, a re-decentralization of energy and a re-decentralization of finance in that direction. At least I think it's inevitable uh, because it's efficient. The, the, the bottom line is that uh, in order to do applications like that, we have to have a certain density of infrastructure and development of infrastructure in the cryptocurrency space that is probably at least a decade or two in the future. Uh, just like you couldn't do Facebook on the internet in 1991. Yeah. We didn't have the web, we didn't have mobile, we didn't have enough users, we didn't have enough people with modems, uh, the modems weren't permanently connected. You couldn't do a lot of those things, right? So you, all of those infrastructural elements needed to come into place before it opens the door to that kind of application. Uh, right now, there aren't enough people, there aren't enough people with cryptocurrencies, there aren't enough, uh, there isn't enough infrastructure for cryptocurrencies, the technology isn't mature, uh, how to hold it securely, the education, all of those things haven't happened. But give it a couple of decades and we could see you know, completely new models for trading in both virtual and ephemeral commodities like electricity, uh, perhaps even on much bigger markets. And, and as with many other internet technologies, this is all about cutting out the middleman. Right now we have intermediaries whose primary purpose is either to aggregate payments or to do matching in markets and protect uh, people who don't trust each other. So they are, they're either a trust intermediary or a payment intermediary. And, and blockchain cryptocurrencies disrupt both of those uh, capabilities because they allow us to replace trust intermediaries with smart contracts, and they allow us to replace payment intermediaries with peer-to-peer -peer transactions. And once you don't need those, then the reason for the Uber or the PG&E or the, the other big intermediaries ceases to exist. Wow, that's incredible. I, I'm so fascinated by the idea of microtransactions as well. I think that's got to be one of the coolest parts about this is breaking into small pieces and the applications of that. Uh, there, there's this really important moment 
with microtransactions, in my opinion, which is that when you change the scale of time and you scale the change the granularity of of something like a payment in commerce, it doesn't just simply continue to operate and behave the same just on a different scale. It changes the entire perception of the market around it and then the functioning of the market around it. We've already done uh, scale changes in our perception of time. The agricultural society scale changed to actually start perceiving minutes and seconds Mm -hmm. other than, you know, before you had a clock in every town square. That was a, a, that changed the way humanity perceived time. It didn't just put a clock in the Times Square. The industrial society changed it one step further. But here's the interesting thing. When you change the nature of money down to micropayments, then nanopayments, like millions, billions of a dollar, uh, and you change the time scale of payments down to thousands of a second, perhaps even smaller, money stops being a quantum thing. It stops being a chunk and it starts behaving more like a flow. I've called this concept streaming money. The idea that you start thinking of cash flow quite literally as a continuous stream of money for a service. So you're not paying for a chunk of service with a chunk of money. You're paying for a stream of service with a stream of money. And that stream of money is in pennies per minute, and you start thinking of it as a flow, right? It's like if you're uh, if a Netflix you're, subscription, instead of being $8 a month, it's like a billionth of a, of a penny every second or every minute or whatever. Yes, exactly. Absolutely. But that fundamentally changes because think about this. Think about paying your rent and receiving your salary in the same way. Now, right now, you get paid if you have a job every two weeks or once a month. Why? Again, payment aggregations for intermediaries that make it inefficient to do it less than that. How about I get paid every second I work? So that I have, my salary is essentially a stream, a continuous stream, and I take that stream and I split it, and I send some to my landlord who's now being paid my rent for every minute I stay in my apartment, and my electricity bill for every, um, you know, watt hour of electricity I use, not even kilowatt hour, but watt hour of electricity I use, and my insurance uh, company for every minute I drive my car, not by the month. Uh, Why not? Because I can. And of course, I'm not doing these things. What I'm doing is I'm setting up software that negotiates payments with these providers and sends them a stream of the appropriate flow rate Um, for the appropriate service. And then as long as the stream is flowing towards them, the service flows in the opposite direction. And you can start doing some really interesting things. Once you get into that idea, it changes the way you think about money. Today, money is transactional, which means you have these points in time when big things happen. Instead of it being this flow, uh, where you think of value as a continuous relationship, Uh, And you're taking an incoming flow of value and you're splitting it up and have outgoing flows of value. It's really interesting because we have the term cash flow, but we've never actually realized the concept. Uh, And I believe in the next 20 years, cash flow will become a literal thing. Cash will flow. Wow, you're blowing my mind right now. I got to tell you this. You've already given me a new way of looking at money. And what I'm... uh, 
I'm imagining a future now where you know how people donate every like monthly to individuals on Patreon and things like that. Right. You know, being able to give a stream of money changes the way that an individual who maybe produces value, you know what I mean? You come on a podcast, you, you know, have a YouTube video or something. People can choose to just, you know, donate a piece of their stream uh, over to you just cons consistently for directly proportion to the kind of, you know, informational value or entertainment value that you're able to provide. Yeah. Well, one of the key concepts in economics that affects the ability of markets to remain competitive and free is the concept of switching costs, which is what is the cost to switch to a different service, a different provider, a different product if you decide you want to. And markets are most competitive when switching costs are low. When you can say, you know, PG&E, bye-bye. Mm -hmm. I'll see you later, or I'm, I'm divorcing my bank, <laughs> I'm <Yeah>. dumping them, <laughs> whatever. Uh, switching costs are enormous in, in supposedly free societies. Of course, in complete monopoly situations, switching costs are infinite. There is no other provider. But even in, in, in our environment, like if you want to switch your bank account, it can take months to yeah. make all of the necessary adjustments to move to another bank. And of course they count on that because what that does is it reduces competition. The same thing for various service providers. But if you start thinking of making money much more granular and turning it into a streaming service, then one of the effects of that is that it massively reduces the switching costs. You just flick that stream over to someone else. Um, and maybe you can do that and not just do it once but do it five times a minute. Yeah. I'll take your insurance. Oh no, your insurance. Oh, maybe no, your insurance or maybe your insurance. I'll buy electricity from you. No, you just got too expensive from you. I don't like your green policies from you. And you can basically have intelligence algorithms doing that. Now you might think, why the hell would I want to essentially operate like some kind of broker? right? And we have these in the electricity markets today. There are traders, brokers who sit in front of giant screens and are like, you know, I'll buy a megawatt from there and sell a megawatt over there. And that's how the electricity market works in the US. You think, why would I want to do that? Well, you know, some people used to say, why would I want to be a television studio? That sounds like a lot of work. And I don't want to be a television producer. I just want to use their services. But when you turn it into software, then the production of television is done by the software and you are freed to take an activity that previously took an institution, a corporation, a massive organization, specialization, trade skills, et cetera, and turn it into a personal hobby. And that's what we're doing right now. We're running a TV station out of your phone and my phone <laughs> you know, yeah. and it's, and we've democratized the process of television production. And as ridiculous and unthinkable as that would seem to someone in the mid uh, 20th century, that's how ridiculous it seems to us now that you might be a broker of different streams of electricity and make decisions and change insurance providers every minute. But of course you wouldn't, you'd have a piece of software. You tell the software what your preferences are, or perhaps it would just learn your preferences through machine learning, and then it would just execute a maximization strategy. Now, that's a market with a hell of a lot of competition. That's a market where if you dissatisfy your customers, they're all gone a minute later. 
and and that's a very tough market to be in as a business, yeah. but it's a great market to be in as a buyer, right? Yeah. Um, and and that's really what this intermediation is about. So you know, there's these concepts where at first we look at this new form of money. And okay, it mostly fits into these areas where things are difficult and there's a lot of friction. And, and maybe those areas are dark and gray areas, like buying drugs in some places or gambling online because you like poker or whatever. Um, and so at first it seems like it's a weird fit. But then you start thinking, once you break down these barriers and you open these opportunities for new applications, then you change the scale of time. Then you change the scale of a transaction. And now you start talking about applications that previously were impossible to do with traditional systems. And now you've opened the door to reimagining the nature of money, transactions between individuals, what it means to engage in commerce as an individual without a corporation, um, without intermediaries, opening up trade on a global basis, and, and changing many of the kind of critical institutions we have in society because for many things they won't be necessary anymore. Um, and, and that's really where I think this idea is powerful. It's jarring at first. It takes a while to get used to this idea of money made not by your government, but by these weird people on the internet. Mm -hmm. um, and going from that to... Um, to a concept like streaming money, uh, micropayments, things like that, and then realizing what implications that has on the future. But we are going that way. And, you know, I'm just glad to be part of it and excited to be part of it, as you can probably tell. Um, man, I got to tell you, it is extremely exciting. After this conversation, I don't know if there's, there's not that many other spaces out there that have this kind of energy, this kind of unlimited feeling potential when you think about all the possibilities of uh, what we could do differently, what we could do better. It's, it's so it's a contagious feeling. I have to say, even just, well, I, th I, th I think there's a few, there, there are a few, you know, there's um, certainly the area of machine learning and artificial intelligence has this kind of uh, contagious enthusiasm. Uh, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of, um, autonomous vehicles of all forms, including drones, flying vehicles, ground vehicles, and things like that. I'm an amateur pilot, so I'm very interested in autonomous and electric aviation. There's all of these very cool cutting edge areas. And if you're a real geek, of course, um, uh, uh, private exploration of space is, is oh, becoming yeah. a very interesting topic. But there aren't that many. You know, there's like four or five of these things. And most of them have, uh, as does Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, they have 10 to 20-year horizons. So you have to stick around to see these effects. The, the great thing about it is where the enthusiasm comes from is looking at the seeds and imagining the whole forest. Like, in, in the seed is the capacity of the entire forest, but in order to see it, you, you either have to be primed for it and have had prior experiences that lead up to it, or you, you have to have this ability to imagine ridiculous things that other people think are impossible. And once you, once you have that ability, you can look at something like Bitcoin, like I did in, in 2012, and that first glimpse, I immediately saw the whole forest. Um, 
And then I ran out and told everyone and they all told me I was wrong. Um, and we're here because I ignored them. Uh, I think that's, that's one of the things about contagious enthusiasm is that when people tell me I'm wrong, when they tell me this isn't how it's going to play out or that I'm being naive or that I'm being silly, first of all, I have the experience of being part of the personal computer revolution, the internet revolution, the modem revolution, the web revolution, the, the, the mobile revolution. And in each one of those, I was the idiot with contagious enthusiasm that kept being told I was wrong. And in retrospect, I wasn't. So that's given me the confidence to go out and say, it's happening again. And this time when people tell me I'm wrong to just ignore them. Um, the, the trick about contagious enthusiasm is that if I really just put out that I, the ideas that I have exploding out of my head and the enthusiasm I have, it really is contagious. Um, because I'm not trying to push a product. I'm certainly not telling people to go buy Bitcoin. That's a dangerous, risky, foolish investment. What I'm telling people to do is read and learn, develop some skills, grasp this technology and see if it might be useful to you, but also see if you can develop some skills in it. Because that's really the essence. It's, it's understanding that these world-changing innovations that are happening are, are things that you can incorporate into your personal life and make them personally changing. And when you go out and you say that, and don't try to push a product or tell people to invest in a scheme or something like that, and you really have um, enthusiasm, people can tell when it's fake, right? There's, I really, really, really enjoy this stuff, and I really feel every part of this enthusiasm. So uh, people can tell it's not fake. So eventually they see a couple of videos of me and they go, okay, either this person is completely delusional or crazy, or he might have a point. Let me read yeah. into it. And I love watching that transformation because I watch people who come at it with a very skeptical perspective and three months later after reading enough, they're like, oh man, this is so fascinating. So yeah. yeah, join me. The rabbit hole goes deep. Um, and there are some rough patches there, but it's fascinating. There's always going to be some rough patches, but you're right. It's certainly fascinating. And I mean, as far as you mentioned, those other technologies that are coming around that are also exciting AI and autonomous vehicles and space flight. And I feel like the common thread between all those and, and even with Bitcoin blockchain and all that is just what it does for individual liberty and individual, you know, freedoms, you know, like your ability to, get around or move faster or transact faster. And I just, I think as far as something that is immediately, you know, it seems like right on the horizon, this has just got to be one of the coolest things ever. So I, I really appreciate you sharing all this. Well, yeah. And you, you can wait for other people to make it change the world, but that's not the interesting opportunity. The interesting opportunity is to use knowledge and, um, adult education and all of the learning tools that exist out there and to use that to improve your own skill sets, to improve your own knowledge and to be part of these changes, not just an observer, not just an investor, which a lot of people see this technology as something they can invest in. It's very difficult to get right. Um, but instead of participants, a contributor, um, and 
that that's really the incredible opportunity. You know, I've had probably three different careers already in my life. They all revolve around computers and technology. Um, but it, there have been all of these opportunities to learn and then learn again and then learn something completely new and apply that together with the experience. And, you know, your show talks about this a lot. And I think it's, it's really where you see the core of this new technology. It's not about investment. It's not about money. It's not about picking which one to buy. Um, it's about education. That's really the most powerful thing you can get from this. Absolutely. Well, Andres, you've been incredibly generous with your time. I've loved this conversation. Uh, before we wrap up, is there any final ask or request or piece of information you'd like to leave with the audience? Sure. I mean, if you enjoyed this conversation, um, I have a YouTube channel with uh, almost 400 videos and they're translated into 37 languages with subtitles, um, many of them in, in Spanish, but also many other languages too. Um, I have a Twitter uh, feed that I post on often. Uh, both of those can be accessed as A-A-N-T-O-N-O-P, A-A-N-T-O-N-O-P, if you could put that in the show notes. And um, I am on Patreon where people can subscribe and get early access to my work and support me in order to allow me to continue to do nonprofit open source education for the masses without sponsors, without ulterior motives, without endorsements. And I do that through monthly um, subscriptions. All of my work is open source. Uh, you can get, share, read, uh, all of it online for free. That is incredible. Well, again, thank you so much. This conversation has been extremely enlightening and, uh, you know, I look forward to seeing what you, what you produce next, reading your latest book and, uh, and, you know, hopefully someday your Patreon, uh, you know, donations turn into a nice monthly stream and we can all send you part of our, our, <laughs> as a flow. Yeah. yeah <laughs> as a flow. As a beautiful flow. Yeah. Cool. Thank well, you thank so much. You. Appreciate your thank time. You. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed that episode, please hit the subscribe button and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. You can find us on Twitter at KWC pod on Instagram at knowledge without college podcast. You can find me Patrick Butler at Patrick Butler zero zero on Instagram and Twitter. I encourage you to send over any feedback you have. If there's any guests you'd like to hear on the show, any topics you'd want to hear discussed. I want to know about it. I want to hear your feedback and opinions. So please Help me make this a better experience for you. And I look forward to hearing from you. Have an excellent day and thanks for listening.